Hello and welcome to another episode of Broadening the Narrative, where I talk to people who are broadening the narrative I was taught. You may have noticed the length of this episode. I can honestly say this mutually respectful and engaging dialogue with Jordan was one of those rare, thoughtful streams of consciousness that only come around as often as we create the space for them. I didn't want to cut anything, so I decided to leave it as a long-form episode and give you all a glimpse into the questions we've been asking and the ways we are changing in the process. If you haven't already, I would love it if you could rate and review to help others find the show. Engagement with the podcast helps with visibility so that more people can find these sacred conversations I've been able to have with such phenomenal humans. Today's music is Humming Fools by Micah Bournet. You can find Browning the Narrative on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I'm your host, Nikki Pappas. My favorite song is Three by Sleeping at Last, like Pass Me the Tissues favorite. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I'm so glad you're here. In, in my view, the, the teachings of Jesus should always outweigh the rest of the Bible. And if it's, if it's, a, if it's, a, if it's a, a Jesus text versus another Bible text, the Jesus text wins in terms of the interpretive power over, you know, the, the other text. On today's episode of Broadening the Narrative, I am joined by Jordan Lukens, who I've known for coming up on a decade, I think, um, because we were part of the same church where he was the worship leader. In recent years, the conversations we've had around theology, politics, gender, you name it, have been just life-giving and fueled hope in me. So this conversation we're going to have will be like the conversations we have whenever we get together. And also, just in case people don't know, Jordan helps with editing the podcast. So I've said it before, but it literally wouldn't be possible without him. And he was a guest in season one in the episode healing from church hurt so thank you jordan for coming on the show again and i'm excited to get to talk with you thank you for having me nikki i literally would not want to be doing anything else but this right now so i'm very grateful to be able to just hang out and talk and share a little bit of all the things that go on in in my head um (laughs) And, and, and I think share some of like the, even just the same content of conversations that we've had Mm -hmm. um, with our friends and people that we know are listening stuff like that. Cause I think for me, I've had a lot of really key insights from just, you know, 15, 20 minute conversations that we've had here and there outside of church building or just like anywhere um, on a Sunday morning after we left church, like you know, I don't know. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of excited about that to just kind of have a more, an episode that's a little more of an open door and just like talking about all this stuff. So thank thank you. Yeah. So, I'm excited too. Well, to start us off, could you just briefly share about your religious background for anyone who doesn't know you or maybe didn't listen to your episode in season one, anything you think would be beneficial for setting the foundation? I was thinking about this uh, opening question I realized I have been, I'm 31, I've been a part of a First Baptist Church for 20 out of those 30 years, and a Reformed Baptist Church for like 28 of those uh, 31 years. So if that gives you like any context, that's my, that's my religious context is is First Baptist, Reformed Baptist, Southern Baptist, all in. And um, that means that I, th- I think 
I thought I wasn't religious. I thought that I was uh, beyond religion. I thought that I was spiritual. And then I had a relationship with Jesus that was that was not religious and but even just painting it in that way of saying like i was i was i was this for 28 years die hard like nobody is right besides the baptists the southern baptists mm-hmm. specifically um that's that's kind of my context i i have been baptized twice and i've said the sinner's prayer three times for people who grew up evangelical, they probably know what the sinner's prayer is. And the first time I don't remember saying it. And so then when I had to go down the aisle to, to talk about being baptized, I, I actually had a lie. Cause I was like five or six. I actually had a lie about when I said the prayer. Cause I didn't remember even saying it. And then um, the second time I was in a, like Royal Ambassador, which is like Boy Scouts for Baptist uh, class. And I was too busy on the craft to hear that they were talking about the the gospel and the sinner's prayer. And so they had asked if anybody hadn't heard it or if everybody had heard it and everybody raised their hand except for me. So then I got swept into a room where I was like kind of forced to say it. And then I got baptized a second time. This was like at a different church two or three years later. I was in fifth grade. And then the like the third and final time was I was a youth grouper and I finally was like, uh, and this used to be like a, like a part of my testimony that, that our church as a whole read a purpose driven life by, um, Oh, what's his name? Rick Warren. Rick Warren. And we were a purpose driven life. And the first line of the book says life is not about you. And I was just like crushed as a seventh grader. So I was like, I live my life like it's about me. And so I, I got saved like a third time and baptized. Uh, I didn't get baptized the, the time in the middle, but I got baptized the third time or the second time after being <laughs> saying the sinner's prayer a third time. <laughs> so that's like, and then from there, I was kind of all, I was all in on the, the whole, I was like hook, line and sinker. I, I did a thing called precept Bible study which is a very conservative particular way to read the, to read and study the Bible. Um, and I was introduced to a lot of people early on, like John Piper, the most extreme I can think of is Paul Washer, uh, David Platt, like these, these just really like intense conservative evangelical preachers who were charismatic and smart and had a lot of good critiques against my life at the time or so I thought and so anyway that's a that's a little bit of background though it's like I was I was all in Mm -hmm. I remember being in college and I was and I remember saying to myself multiple times or praying even just like I'm so thankful God that I was born in a time and place to parents to a uh, into the right church that I believe in the tr- one true God. Mm-hmm. Like, thank you for for placing me here. I could have been born anywhere, and so that was like the level of certainty and religiosity, and uh, and kind of a little bit of background about my 
about where I'm coming from. Yeah, no, thanks for sharing that. And something Steve and I were just talking about the other day. So knowing that you're an Enneagram nine and him being an Enneagram nine, that idea of life is not about you, you know? And so he and I, we were talking, we were talking that out and we're like, that's not the message a nine needs to hear, you know, like, oh, it's yeah, just man. not wow. like, um, and so we were thinking about, you know, depending on who you are and what, you know, what your type is and, you know, a lot of pastors don't even know, you know, aren't into the Enneagram, don't know their type, but they're preaching what they need to hear. <laughs> but then yeah. I know at least in our context that we came from, a lot of times it felt like, okay, so you're preaching this, we need to do this, but then not seeing it lived out. Um, you know, it was like this expectation that you do this, you know? And so it was like, count others more significant. We're like, okay, we're doing that. But what if we don't see the person telling us to do it? Like, what if they're not doing it? But it's like, Mm -hmm. they need that message. Like, you know, and a person who already bends towards self-forgetfulness and um, really making themselves small to the point of not honoring who they are as a person and what they have to contribute doesn't need to hear that message. So it's just interesting to think of seventh grade you having that land on you in such a way when it's like, Oh, that's not the message you needed. We'll probably get into it too. But I think that that, that plays into that whole um, sin conversation of like what's or the total depravity piece that I think maybe we'll we'll get into and like how the shame of, of all it, of all of it drove, drove me to just such a place of devotion. Yeah. To try and get it right. But I think we'll probably get there, but that's great. I didn't even ever thought of that, that that message resonated so deeply. It was like, yes, that's exactly right. (laughs) And then it just like, uh, took me to all kinds of places. Yeah. Yeah. Well, even just hearing what you're, you're saying, when I interviewed Emily Joy Allison a few weeks ago, you know, she talked about her new book, which is hashtag church Two about purity culture and how purity culture upholds abuse. And she said something about how she doesn't come to any of the work she does as an outsider or someone who has uh, only studied this evangelical world for fun, but instead as a longtime graduate of evangelicalism. And so I was like, yeah, that's you, you know, too, that's me. Um, And then I saw this post from, Phil Drysdale, I think about how it's often people who diligently studied the Bible and who took it seriously, who are now deconstructing their faith or who end up going through this deconstruction. And so I would say, yeah, like that's how I ended up here having this conversation with you and the things we're going to talk about. So, yeah. So could you provide some perspective around something we've talked about before, like the limits of this narrow expression within evangelicalism, specifically, I would say like white evangelicalism. Um, that we were taught of what it means to worship God when compared to the history of the Christian church, as well as the global Christian church president, sorry, presently. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. To just touch on your, your, your transition there a little bit too, is I, I just actually heard Derek Webb, who is well known to a lot of evangelicals as being this, this famous musician uh, with, cadence call and he went through a lot of deconstruction process and and but still hangs out in you know christian thought conversations and things like that and and i i heard him talking on a podcast recently and he said i'm still around because i because i care because i deeply love this tradition and this this people and like 
and I'm 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 here because I I this is my this is my thing. I grew up in this, and uh, anyway, so I I definitely resonate with that. Of just just I'm not, we're not people that never really got it and then bailed because we because there were some things that we didn't like about it there's there's definitely plenty of those people and they have really good reasons for why they never really got it and got out but we're not that either like we we really understood at the level that those that are in it understand and and we try we try to keep going uh and so so yeah so but but in terms of the limitations of it I, I think that there is a sense in which, and maybe we can post in the show notes, but there's a, there's a really good comic, this guy uh, called The Naked Pastor. I don't know if you've seen a lot of his stuff, but my friend Glenn, who has a podcast as well, we can also link him in the notes if we want to, but he, um, he, he's posted it before. It's like a, it's like a chalkboard and a teacher teaching all the kids and there's like this crazy there's like jesus in the early church like way over on left side and then there's this branching web of all the different ways in which people have you know taken that out and then at the very end there's like you know 100 branches out later there's a lady or the the teacher's like pointing to this one little branch and she's saying and this is where we are now and we've got it 100 right <laughs> you know trying to illustrate that just like all these people over the years have tried to figure out this thing that is Christianity and the, these teachings that are in the Bible, and they've all come to different conclusions. And here we are in modern day evangelical American Christianity, and we're saying we've got the lock on this thing. We've got it 100% right. And it's just kind of dishonest like or maybe not dishonest but it's kind of uh it's kind of unfair to all the christians that have come before us Mm -hmm. in 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 the in the sense that they've all worked through all of these different um you know phases and we're and we're dismissing the vast majority of it and not even really understanding that we are as you know false or or heretical or they made a wrong turn here they made a wrong turn there this person was right this person was wrong and yeah and and so i think that's that's one of the major limitations that i see of it now is it's just so incredibly narrow and it it seems to express uh, like for example it, it seems to it seems to not be as missional and loving and evangelical as it wants to be. It, it seems that the, that the modern expression of it in, in my, uh, in the, the theology that's driven the modern expression of it leads the world, people who are not in it, to think very specific things about what, what Christians stand for. So there's a, I, I was listening to a you have permission podcast and there's a uh, PCA pastor on there talking about Christian nationalism. And we don't have to get too much into this, but in that, in that podcast, the, and I'll see if I can remember his name at some point, but he was saying that in back in 2014, so this was six years ago, 
evangelical or Americans were polled on on what is the first what is the thing they most associate with even American evangelicals and the number one thing by and large vast majority of Americans associated the word evangelical Christian with hate for LGBTQ community it was like that was the that was the immediate oh you're a Christian oh you hate gay people which is like that that can't that can't be Christian. <laughs> the the modern expression of it, the the theological underpinnings of it that that lead to this to this place are are extremely problematic for the the actual thing that it's it's trying to be, uh, or or that that maybe you would say that Jesus taught, um, and then and then the the the. I think my, my other thing about it is that in terms of a limitation is that it, it's not, it is kind of dishonest with itself. It's, it's, it's something that wants to ascribe all of the power to something above it. So everybody within evangelical Christianity wants to say that there is an authority, which is the Bible that is the, that, that informs and influences their, their life and they they are outside of it and it imparts all the knowledge and wisdom to them but the issue with that is that every single person is looking at the thing through a lens of personal experience of past teachings and experience uh, from the people before them and so on and so forth and nobody is able to get the the perfect and good exact, you know, higher power of the Bible or higher truth of the Bible without coloring it with their own perspective. Mm -hmm. And, and evangelicals, when you try to explain that their experience has colored their view, just like my experience has colored my view, just like everybody's has, they say, no, I, you know, it's that very, uh, that very, common i just believe the bible i i just believe in truth uh but it's a very opinionated version uh, just like mine is just like mine is and so that that's i mean i talked for a long time but that's a lot of the limitations is that the just to summarize the the fruits of it appear to be hatred when there's a lot of really good bible that says like that's not what people should be thinking of you sure sure maybe you'll be persecuted and, and hated uh but they but they but they should know that you are loving um and especially loving towards one another but but the the general the data even it shows that christians are not loving people american christians are not thought of as loving people so uh and and then yeah and then that that there is this limitation of that that's unseen that's un it's un, uh, unknown to them. It was unknown to me when I was in it. I was like, I, I think I, I think I'm just objectively looking at the thing and I'm pulling the objective thing, the objective truths out. And that's what I follow, but it really isn't that. And so those are, those are some of the limitations. There's a lot more, <laughs> but, um, but yeah. Yeah, it's so funny because I literally thought of that cartoon because you had sent it to me and Danielle Stocker with the oh, yeah. thing. Yeah. 
And so just that, the idea, like, honestly, the arrogance in it, right. Of like, Jesus is lucky to have us and like us coming along and, and getting everything right. Um, and yeah, and I think for me, right, there was this idea that the early church had it right because we're sinners and wicked, all these people went astray, but now we understand it. And what we're teaching is what is, you know, it's like this narrow expression of it is what we need to be replicating. And so even when I like reference like the global church, it's like, we're taking this, like for us, even it was even more narrow expression of that within the reformed, like Calvinist world, like to think that we have the, the best understanding and that we need to get everyone to think like we think that rules out literally billions and billions and billions and billions of people. And so it's just, yeah, the superiority is just baked into that. And yeah. And to think that it's up to us to colonize the world with this bastardized Jesus and his false gospel. Cause it is, cause it's only good news to a select few people, right? Like for a select group of uh, people, even it's, it, the reformed, uh, the reformed theology, it, it had a, it, it had a thing where it, it espoused this supposedly beautiful truth that all you have to do is believe and, and believe the, I mean, more specifically, believe the right things. And, mm-hmm. and the problem with that was, though, that it really did come along with the fact that you also have to act right. And in, in, in any reformed person listening to this podcast would be like, uh, no, absolutely not. It has nothing to do with your works. Uh, but take, take, for example, like me, or I've, I've heard, I mentioned Derek Webb earlier, but I've heard him talk about it too, of this thought of, I mean, I remember, um, I remember, being in that worldview where I, com- I was bought and sold on the five points of Calvinism. And I continued to do things that my Bible said I should not do. And I, I have always taken this thing very seriously as I kind of talked about in the last episode and, um, and, and so on. But because I took it so seriously, like every time I did something that was not consistent with the Bible, I was like, I mean, for sure, I was like, okay, well, there's, you know, there's grace and there's da da da, but, but there's this, uh, there's this, there's this, well, how come I keep doing it? How come I keep, how come I keep lying? How come I keep, uh, you know, wanting to, like, how come this pride thing keeps coming back? How come I keep wanting to make something of myself when I'm, when I'm not supposed to really be doing that? Why, why do I love the affection of, of people so much, you know? this feels habitual and oh well i i guess i still really love that and it's really an idol and and i can't and i can't shake it i can't get rid of it so i must not be elect you know <laughs> i must not be because it's uh because i can't i can't shake it i can't kill it it won't it won't die it won't ever go away and so so there was this like it 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 made you if you weren't if you were at all self-aware, you were realizing that you might not be in, (laughs) even though it was like this free gift and it was, but it was, but it was also only some people. Um, So, yeah. So I don't, I don't know. I don't know. It it was, uh, it's a weird limiting paradoxical kind of view that that doesn't make a lot of sense now being on the outside of it 
Yeah. Yeah. We've talked about this too, but I kind of wanted to dive into it a little bit more. If you could just say a little about what it means when you say, I'm doing what you taught me in response to people who don't think you're as serious about your faith now as you once were. Yeah, I, I touched, I guess I touched on this a little bit last time, but I, I really, I really take my Christianity seriously in, in, in that I, I'm, when I said I'm doing what you taught me, what I mean is there's a, there was a specific practice of trying to understand the text that was analytical. It's really, you know, it's based in modernity, which has a lot of problems, but, um, but, but it was what I was given by evangelicals, which was to mm-hmm. say, what we're going to try to do is understand the direct context of, of a verse. So you, or even you, you start with a word and then you look at the context of the, the sentence that the word is in. And then you look at the paragraph that the sentence is in. And then you look at the chapter that the paragraph is in and you go all the way out. And then, and then once you've hit the end of the bookends of whatever book of the Bible you're in, then you say, okay, well, I still don't completely understand this. I think I get a lot of it, but now I have to keep expanding my context so that I understand. So the, with the book, it would become, uh, okay, so now I have to figure out the time period that this was written in. I have to figure out who it was written for. I have to figure out all of the cultural underpinnings of it. I really have to get, I have to figure out, is the translation accurate? Like, did the did the did the did the writers mean what the translators uh, actually put down? And okay, so actually, I need to learn the original Greek of the text to really understand the text, and uh, and so on and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And what I what I have found is that many, if not all, of the of the like stake in the ground beliefs of where we were of the of the modern evangelical christian they stop at some point in that process Hmm. or they outright ignore the context that they know is there that's well documented and Hmm. and historically written down because it doesn't line up with their already given to them conclusions by their teachers and their commentators and their people. And it's just, uh, it's, it's frustrating because I, 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 I was given this education and they're saying, this is the way you do it. And then, and then we get, and then I get out and I'm like doing it. Mm -hmm. And then they're, and then they're like, at least in my church context, I mean, I was given this by evangelical Christians who are doing it really right and who I trusted and who who gave me a lot of this knowledge and then and then I get out into a lot of church context and they just like full stop uh at whatever the convenient location of that for them um so so yeah so that's that's what I mean when I'm saying like I'm doing what you taught me because I am taking this this uh this this trying to understand the original intent of the text mm-hmm. so incredibly seriously and i feel like you're you're making a joke of it by stopping mm-hmm. where you're stopping you know by um 
yeah, or by just not acknowledging the inherent issues of your English Standard Version Bible. <laughs> like, you know, like if you just keep quoting that to me, that's not the inspired word. Like that's that's somebody's very slanted interpretation of the thing. Mm-hmm. So like it just doesn't it doesn't work. Uh, and yeah, so that that's what I mean. Like I'm I I I want to get to the core of what they were trying to say what they were trying to get across because if I'm supposed to be a Christian and I'm supposed to believe in the Bible, then I have to get to the the bottom of what they were trying to say. And I'll never do that, but it has to be the pursuit of my life, Mm. you know? And uh, yeah, so that's what I mean. Yeah. I know for, for me, that's something I started to see was that, if I'm going to be consistent in my hermeneutical approach, then I've got to really dig deeper. And I did feel like for so long, the excavation just stopped short. And so it's like, if we just stop here and we don't carry it all the way out, like we do for these other things, then it definitely leaves us at a place where we don't have the full picture. And even now it's just interesting for me, because I, I see that I'm operating from the hermeneutic provided on the first pages of what I still consider sacred texts, you know, where I'm told that people bear the image of God. So it's like, if that is informing my beliefs, right, then there shouldn't be a problem here. Like I'm letting that guide my beliefs. And I actually interviewed Nandi K in, by the time this airs, that'll be um, the episode before yours. But you know, they said, Nandi said, black life inherently matters because it's here. That's it. And so I see Nandi's framework as more in line with upholding the inherent dignity in all people as bearers of the image of God when compared to many white Christians who I've spoken with about justice, particularly racial justice. And, you know, they're the ones writing me off as being deceived by liberal ideology, even though Nandi's approach and the approach that I'm now taking is more in line with the doctrine of the Imago Dei. And yeah. yeah, And like, and I also feel like, you know, we were really taught this filtering everything through the two great commands, the two greatest commands. And so I now ask myself, like, does this help me love God? And does this help me love other people? And we talked about this too before, like a good tree bears good fruit. And I remember hearing Jen Hatmaker talk about that and examining the fruit of my theology and being like, oh, this fruit is rotten. (laughs) And so, um, yeah. Yeah. And even, sorry to bring up uh, Emily Joy's interview again, you know, in her, um, in her book, Church Two, you know, she, she's writing specifically about the theology of purity culture, but she reveals that it isn't a misapplication of the theology, but rather the theology itself that is leading to the abuse and the associated consequences. And so I can see that with now with so much of the theology that I was taught, it's like, oh, this isn't misapplying it, you know, because, and and we talked about this maybe before too, is like when John MacArthur told Beth Moore uh, or talking about Beth Moore, didn't tell her, but like the go home and people were trying to like so many of these nice white men that I know trying to distance themselves from him and being like, well, he and that is like hyper complementarianism. And I'm like, it's not hyper complementarianism. Like he's, he's just 
it's an outworking of the same beliefs. If I try to distance myself from that, then I absolve myself of taking right. responsibility for the ways right. that the actual theology is rotten, not just misapplied. Yeah. In but, fact, you yeah. have to you have to kind of misapply the theology to do it right. Mm. You know, like like for the complementarian piece of it anyway, it's like if you if you really want to do it and be just about it and be fair, you have to ignore a lot of the, the, the real teachings of it, you know? Yeah. Uh, Which I guess is obvious. Like if you're, (laughs) if the theology itself is rotten, then of course you have to do the opposite of it. But anyway. One of the chief cautions leveled against conservative Christians who begin questioning their theology is the fear of the slippery slope. And so I thought about a conversation we had before and wanted you to unpack what you meant when you pointed out this fallacy inherent in referring to deconstruction as a slippery slope. Yeah, well, I actually I actually think that in some ways it is a slippery slope because the the theology that you're standing on in the first place is a house of cards. So it's like, it, like all everything we've been talking about in the first place is all of these very limiting beliefs that don't account for all kinds of Bible, just the, even Bible, you know, not to mention the like the right way in by their own admission to, to read and study the thing. So, you know, you do, you have these, you have a lot of evangelicals saying like, if you, if you, for example, in my context, and we didn't talk about this a lot, but one of the things in my context that I fought was in our context that I fought was, well, if we go down the compliment, if we go down, if we, if we abandon complementarianism, even though it's not an essential belief, if we, if we abandon it for egalitarianism, then all of this flood of other acceptance will follow, uh, like the, you know, like LGBTQ acceptance and, and uh, in general, a a more, you could call it a more liberal wave, a more accepting, a more generous wave of theology just kind of has to follow from your view of inspiration to your view of just like the whole, the whole kit and caboodle, it does, it kind of all starts to slide down this hill. And it's, it's, it actually does. And, and it's, it's noticeable for a lot of people to slide down this slope because the whole thing does fall apart when you pull one card out because the whole thing is, is, is just empty (laughs) and hollow. And, but on the other hand, I think what we talked about last time was that there's this, there's this, presupposition from the evangelicals of which I held very strongly for for many years I mean I was I don't mean to use the Paul cliche of like I was the chief this guy but like I was so adamantly Mm -hmm. the protector of truth that I you know that I delighted in talking about who was a heretic and 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 but it Anyway, it, it, it's this presupposition that you, ought, that you hold 100% when you're on top of that, 
slope, mm-hmm. the, the truth, right? That you, that you have the lock on, on 100% understanding of the Bible. And the farther that somebody gets away from you, the farther into darkness they are slipping. And so it's kind of a combination of those, I think those two illustrations of, well, of course it's slippery slope. The whole thing falls apart anyway because of how disingenuous it is to its own text, to its own process. But then also it's this, it's this certainty of like this absurd certainty that you, that you, that you know the infinite God uh, like 100%. So, yeah, I think that about covers what I mean by the the fallacy of the slippery slope. Yeah, yeah, because it's I like the the house of cards analogy there. But then also, yeah, to think like it is going to lead you from one thing to another, like the the illustration I've heard people talk about, like pulling on a a thread and you unravel Mm -hmm. the whole blanket, you know? Um, So it's like, yeah, that happens. But also when we think of it as you're starting at the top and the only way to go is down, then it kind of cheapens the, like can make it seem like uh, there's an inherent superiority even to, to refer to it as starting at the top. And yeah, like, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say like full disclosure, I haven't actually read the book, um, but Gwen got it for me for my birthday, The Sin of Certainty by Pete Enns. But yeah, I mean, the tagline of it is uh, why God desires our trust more than our quote, correct beliefs. And I just remember for me, like I was so terrified to begin questioning the beliefs um, that I'd held so tightly and to doubt because it had been so drilled into me that I didn't want to be one of the ones who falls away and shows that I was never a Christian to begin with, <laughs> you know, like right. that was just really scary. The cost of falling away was too high, you know, is it, what were you yeah. going to say? No, I mean, I think that's a hundred percent. It is that, 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 and that's that, that's one of those mechanisms that keeps you in, you know, is just that, I have to, I have to have this thing right. And I have to know certainly because the cost of, of losing it is, uh, I mean, the thing is supposed to tell me that I can't lose it, but the cost of losing it is, is pretty extreme yeah. in terms of like the eternal consequence. But I would even say more so like if, when you're, when you're a, a young person or just somebody that's totally in that, the, the more acute loss of your community of yeah. your status as someone who understands and believes of it's just like it's your whole world yeah. um so yeah and and to get back to the oh no i'm gonna forget oh no this the certainty piece of like you know there there is a there is a temptation uh should i say with with leaving the with leaving evangelical Christianity to just flip to the opposite side and still hold up the same patterns of like unwholeness of like, I, I'm, well, I'm certain I'm still certain. I'm just certain about the different things now. And what I really think is that, that, that process, if you, if if you stick to the process that the evangelicals actually laid out in terms of how to study your Bible and you have a half decent understanding of how history works and how recorded texts show up 
then what you really the the conclusion you actually get to is uh i can't understand this i will never understand this fully this actually lines up with my view of god that he's bigger than i am and more uh and and not he's not capable of being understood they are not capable of being understood with my language with my words with any any view through through humanity that gets to me i will not grasp the fullness of god Mm. and i have to i have to be if i'm trying to be a christian that has to be where i land uh maybe i'm hopeful you know about that that i'm that i'm that i'm getting there that i'm that i'm on the right um that i'm on the right scent you know of 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 what this is all about and and i think that hope is a big a big piece of it like i think if you're gonna try to be a christian you have to be hopeful but i think as soon as you pass into the realm of certainty you're not a christian anymore you're just a religious modernist you're just a you know you're you're just like a you're just a realist you you think you're a realist because you're just like oh this is the way that it really is i don't i really don't want to go to hell i really believe that this person is real uh and that and that they were a good person you know or whatever and so like i'm just gonna try and follow the rules because i I don't have to believe in anything because i know you know i know that the thing is real Hmm. and uh yeah so so that 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 piece of it to me is is what's challenging actually is because now i feel i still feel the temptation to be i've gotten the bag now i didn't have it then but now i've got it (laughs) it's like that's not true either uh so yeah so yeah i feel that i feel like that leads really well into the next question because i wanted to hear from you right like you know where we were um you know, it got me thinking about dogmatic people in the segment of Christianity we were a part of, because there can be dogmatic people, like, as you're pointing out, no matter Mm -hmm. what sector that you're in, but, you know, the audacity to disdain those of us who have now arrived at a different conclusion, even though we, as we've already talked about, like, put great effort into reaching the conclusions we've reached and trying to hold them humbly, you know, and not just become dogmatic on the other side. But, yeah, like, what are your interactions like with dogmatic people now? And how do you kind of protect your peace around that? I don't always uh, protect my peace. Sometimes I just, that scene from Braveheart gets into my head where uh, I'm a big movie buff. So a lot of my thoughts are filtered through movie scenes. <laughs> but, but there's a scene in Braveheart where like they're all standing on the battlefield and uh, one of the guys says to Mel Gibson's character, like, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm going to pick a fight. <laughs> and like, and it, and it's just kind of like, precious, like, yeah, like, yes, you should. Uh, so I don't know. Sometimes I let that voice uh, win, you know, and I, and I just fight dogmatic people with more dogma on the other side. Like we were just talking about is not necessarily the way but I, I am trying to learn this whole third way thing that, that maybe a lot of people who are on this journey with us have kind of heard about with that, that Richard Rohr talks about and others talk about of just this third way of trying to, trying to honor the parts of that, of those 
of those people's journey that is that is really helpful and and powerful and impactful in my life that that was uh those things and to try to remember not in any sort of patronizing way but like to try to remember what it felt like to be there and to try to and to try to to empathize with that that sort of certainty that you feel on a on a really core level and and then and then to try to use all the resources i have to try and know that too like this person and and you know and me like i I don't have any control of how i ended up here i'd like to think that i have some hand in you know in uh in my in my decisions and but there's just so many factors outside of me that have influenced me that have either either they were luck or they were god like whatever they were like i'm where i am other people are where they are and nobody nobody really knows why <laughs> so th- i think just acknowledging that truth of like just kind of the absurdity of reality is like mm-hmm. just remembering like there's something amazing going on here and nobody really gets it and and we're that we're here at all and that we're thinking and conscious is is just an amazing gift so to to just try and like get down to that level of of is to say that like okay this this person is my brother uh or or my sister and i'm and i and i yeah and so and and they're here too so i i think that if i can remember that when I'm when I'm dealing with folks like that, uh, then that's that's the most helpful thing. But I don't always, maybe not most of the time. You know, like mm-hmm. I ran into someone recently, and I was very guarded, and I was very like I was very like my eyes were not making eye contact, and I was thinking of every excuse I could to like get away, uh, just because I you know I just had this reaction in the moment. So it, mm-hmm. it's it's just something you, you know, that takes time. Yeah. No, I, I like that. Um, something I was thinking about was during this meet and greet of a Truths Table live event, Dr. Christina Edmondson gave a response to a question about complementary theology. And she said complementary theology was a reaction to feminism. And I'd never heard that before and didn't realize that it was in 1977 was when George Knight III published his seminal work on what's now called um, complementarian view on gender. But that really blew my mind because, you know, I was taught that view as if it was the view held since the inception of the Christian church. But Dr. Christina Edmondson went on to say that she doesn't want to teach her daughters a reactionary theology. Instead, she teaches them a biblical theology. So commentarianism is just one example of reactionary theology, but it was a powerful piece of religious dogma that shaped my life. But I just think it's interesting how dogmatic people will double down on that position, regardless of what new information is presented to them that could contradict or challenge it. And like, these are intelligent people, like, right. But the backfire effect, or like, I've also heard it called like belief perseverance that prevents them from engaging in any meaningful way with new information. But Yeah, I've talked with you about this church we've been attending via Zoom in Hawaii. And so Stephen and I were talking with Amy and Pastor David 
um, of the Well Church in Hawaii. And David pointed out that if someone didn't feel like their theology or beliefs were being threatened, they would have no reason to react right? To peddle that reactionary theology. So that's really helped me stay more grounded because I can see like, oh, this person is having a human response in their own bodies to feeling threatened, right? So I don't excuse their behavior that they're having if they try to attack me or my intelligence, right? But like, I can still hold them accountable by calling on them to release those dehumanizing oppressive ideologies, but do it from a more understanding place now than I once had uh, what you're talking about too. Yeah, I think that's so good. And, And even just when I think about you know, a lot of what I talked about in the last episode of just so many of those interactions and just looking back on them and saying like, yes, there's no excuse for the, the breaking of the relationship that happened on, on their end. There's, there's definitely a good reason that, or maybe not a good reason, but a human reason, like you're saying, like there's, there's a real physiological biological response that that's happening for like survival instinctual purposes and uh yeah and and that and to 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 be kind about that or just to be understanding about that is is and even to 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 know that and then to and to be able to begin to reframe conversations in a way that doesn't aggravate that in someone you know like one of the things i was taught in worship school in this in this place was that there there's like a threshold of there's a threshold at which if somebody already disagrees with it if you go beyond that threshold it was like i'm not remembering now but it was like 20 percent. which how do you even you know quantify that in a conversation but it was like a, a certain percentage if you if you start hitting beyond this people's prefrontal cortex shut down mm-hmm. and their, their, uh, I don't remember what it's called. The lizard brain piece of your brain kicks in and you immediately start defending and you no more critical thinking happens after that point. And so, yeah, it's, it is, it's just a very real human. I mean, it happens to me all the time too, yeah. where my brain shuts down and I'm just like, no, I'm right. And, uh, so then to be, to, to try and start reframing my conversations and the way that I approach people I disagree with so that we can have a real conversation so that I'm not just agitating what I know is going to cause defensiveness and unhelpfulness and division. Um, yeah. yeah. doesn't mean I don't like hold on and still really try to get to the real point, but, or, or even soften the blow, but just approach it in a way that is, consistent with what I believe how I'm supposed to treat Mm -hmm. people you know and how patient I'm supposed to be with people and all that kind of stuff yeah yeah that's really good well let's dig into some of these beliefs shall we um first up sin so how do you classify sin now compared to before the questioning surrounding our beliefs really intensified this is an interesting question because I think in general, when you move in a direction that that we've moved, you, in some ways you think about sin less just in general because 
it does become less personal to you. It's not that I don't believe that sin still isn't things I do wrong. Like, I think that's a really good definition of sin. It's things I do wrong. It's, it's things and wrong. I would probably uh, define as unloving, you know, anything unloving that I do. Uh, and so in an individual sense, I, I still think that's right. I, I, I used to think that sin was inborn in people and people would tell me that once you have kids, you'll really believe that uh, sin is inborn, that you're born with it. Cause those kids, they just come out little sinners, you know, they, and like, and it was just like, Oh yeah, it's, I mean, obviously two, two year olds, are, but actually becoming a parent, um, um, I have a 19 month old now and I, and I, and I'm like, no, actually like everything awful that he does, he definitely learned from me. Like, <laughs> you know, he definitely learned from the world around him and everything that he's done, you know, that maybe I don't like that he didn't learn from me. He's doing to live, like to survive. Like if he's self, you know, like whatever it is, he cries or he's upset or he's mad. Like he's, he's just trying to, he's trying to survive. And then now that he's becoming a little person, I'm like everything that he learned to be defiant, he learned from me. Like, I just, I see it. So like, he wasn't born with, he wasn't born with this. And, and I think we talked about before, just, I'm a big Richard Rohr fan and I think he gets a lot right. And maybe I am a little too, uh, I don't know, invested in, in some of the ways that he thinks, but uh, but he talks about the concept of original goodness and I guess we're getting away from sin, but I just, in terms of individual sin, I just don't think that sin is inborn in the individual. I think that the, and I think that the Bible is more points to sin as this corporate mechanism that, that is, that is evil. And not, I don't mean corporate, like in the modern sense of though, though there's, I mean, a lot of good uh, parallels, but but corporate in terms of sin mostly presents itself in a in a systemic way. So when people begin to organize, when they begin to form groups, when they begin to build things together, uh, the cumulative imperfections of the individuals express themselves in a much greater evil than any than this than even the sum of the individuals themselves like it creates it, it creates this a system of evil uh in which all people are impacted so that, that's kind of the way i think about sin i think there's there's a lot of really good resources about corporate sin uh and and how the bible talks about sin as a corporate problem more than an individual problem mm. but yeah but i think i i think of sin more as a disconnecting force anything that's unloving uh but that mostly expresses itself i mean the the you could argue that the most awful things that have happened in in history have happened under organized you name it Mm. organized religion organized government organized like it's it's not individuals that have the destructive power to commit genocide and, and so, yeah, so I think, I think there's a lot of really good evidence in our modern history, in, in the Bible as well, that sin is this, is, this, is this force that happens when people get together. And I think that's kind of what the Tower of Babel is about, 
and mm. in a lot of other Bible stories. It's just like people get together, they organize, they destroy themselves. Mm. And that's not to say that collaboration isn't also the key to greater <laughs> unity and love and, and all that, but it's just, uh, but, but yeah. Yeah, no, I like you going there and I have so many thoughts right now. Um, the first being, so you even like talking about this individualistic, like the, the lens we had of viewing sin. So actually in her book, The Very Good Gospel, Lisa Sharon Harper, she talked about that the Greek word translated as sin is derived from a Greek term for archery that means to miss the mark of perfection. And so that's what has informed our belief is this Greek word. Um, you know, she, uh, I'll read this part. She says this word, along with the ancient Greek cultural focus on the individual fundamentally shaped the modern Christian view of sin. So consequently, yeah. then what do we do? We seek perfection in a person's character and their unblemished outward behavior. And so that checks out definitely lined up with, um, yeah with how I viewed sin before, but then in an episode of either on truth's table or almost heretical, I can't remember which, but I can put both those in the show notes. Uh, Cause they were both excellent with Lisa Sharon Harper. She talked about how we don't have a Greek faith. We have a Hebrew faith. So like we've based all this about sin off of a Greek word, but we haven't gone back to the Hebrew right. faith to see what our faith tradition has to teach us. And so tracing those origins helps us to really understand what the Hebrews were trying to communicate about sin. And again, I think that gets into hermeneutics, you know, that we were talking yeah. about to understand yep. the original context and the roots of this belief. So I'll read this part too. She went on to write regarding, um, I'm going to try to say this right. Tov Miod, which has been translated as very good in Genesis one mm -hmm. and talking about creation. Um, and she wrote, but the Hebraic concept of Tov Miod gives us a sense of what God considers emphatically good or perfect, which is relational wholeness and wellness. So this very good in Genesis one does not necessarily refer to the very goodness of the object itself of this individual object, but it refers to the completeness of the whole and wellness of relationships among all the parts. Mm -hmm. And so if this is the Hebrew conception of perfection, then she says sin is anything that breaks relationships that God had called very good in the beginning. So yeah. for me, this was radically different from that individualistic view of sin to this more communal view that encompassed my relationships with God, but with myself as well, with other people around me, with animals, with plants, with the water, okay. right? With all of creation, this very goodness, because the relationships overflowed with goodness. Like, and so, yeah. And so anyways, one more thought there, as I adjusted my thinking about sin, I really started to become struck by how Jesus didn't, didn't directly confront what we consider sin in his day. And uh, I ended up writing a whole Twitter thread about this, where I quoted oh. Matthew seven, one through five, which is Jesus talking about not judging and and to take the beam of wood out of your own eye before trying to take a splinter out of someone else's. And so I had heard it taught and it was said to me that if I remove the beam from my eye, then it was the most loving thing I could do to kind of go pluck that splinter out of another right. person's eye. And so I really regret 
like how often I literally sprinted at people with tweezers, right? Um, if we're going to carry it all the way out, the whole analogy to, to extract yeah. this speck. And so, yeah, Jesus critiqued the unjust systems of his day and those who benefited from those systems. Those were systems that negatively impacted the tov mio, the very goodness of relationships. And I just keep thinking about how his interactions with the oppressed around him, he would say, you're forgiven, go and sin no more. And didn't give further elaboration on what that right. sin was. Like, you know, we would want to know, like, or we, right. we jump to the conclusion. We think we know what he was talking about regarding sin. And we lack so much understanding of that context. Right. Um, but anyways, I'm now thinking if that approach was good enough for Jesus, <laughs> you know, then uh, why do I think I need to elaborate on people? Yeah. Oh, so yeah, yeah, I'm just, I'm done with judging others for making and, personal decisions that are just different from the decisions that I make. And I'd rather conserve my energy. And I think this is a better use of my energy for the beam of wood in my own eye and for critiquing the unjust systems and those who benefit starting with myself. But yeah. And like I said, I'm filtering everything through those commands of love God, love neighbor. And so, yeah, yeah I'm like, if it doesn't do that and if it's harming someone, if it's breaking relationship and that toad yeah. me owed, then I believe it to be sin. But, you know, that's very different from having this list of do this and don't do this. Yeah. And this is sin. Um, and one more thought there. I know yeah, some go. people, they might say that I'm just trying to redefine sin as far as specifics go. Um, but really Jesus, like I said, didn't give us much to go off of regarding sin and showed the people how they weren't getting the point of the Ten Commandments. And we don't say he was redefining. We say he was clarifying when he said, you've heard it said, but I say, but I really feel like if Jesus came today and tried to do the same thing, we would accuse him of redefining sin. Um, And I think it just comes back to, (laughs) I think it comes back to asking that question, like, what's the line and who gets to decide it? And it's like the powerful, those who want to use shame as a tool to control others, like your aunt Melanie said in her episode mm-hmm. from a couple of weeks ago, like those are the ones determining the line and who gets excluded. And I can now see that's just antithetical to the ministry of Jesus when I now read the Bible and look at sin yep. differently. We'll be there when our fantasies become common sense. And even then we will speak of impossible things. The only hope we have are the stories we tell. Stories not bound by what is possible, by what is dead. We walk on water, we resurrect. They laughed us to death, but here we are. Humming fools, unashamed of hope. No, I totally agree. I actually an example of kind of what you're talking about is um, back to that Beth Moore thing that happened where John MacArthur uh, um, told her to go home. And I, I was arguing actually with a with a, a former friend, sadly, uh, who has kind of disfellowshipped me to use an evangelical word. Uh, but I was arguing with him a couple years back when that happened that. He, that he sinned that he that he committed a sin which is like i i don't do very often you know and and maybe that's even counter to kind of the point you're trying to make of like pull this, pull the log out of your own eye but i was trying to argue that he sinned in that moment and mm-hmm. um and my friend was saying 
well, tell me what the sin was. Like, give me the give me the classification of sin that that was from basically what's listed in the New Testament as sins. Like, you know what I mean? Like, did like which one was it? Which sin was it that he that he committed? And um, you know, and like, and I and I remember um, in the moment I didn't really have the words to. I was like kind of flabbergasted like how, how do you not see what he did as just so terribly disrespectful and and mean and um and just like completely against what everybody loves about his character you know or his supposed character that that he's this man of god and he's making jokes about a woman who's not even there and everybody's laughing and i think i tried to use slander and then he got very technical about what slander actually is and I was just thinking, like, this is not, like, like this is so legalistic, like, to, to try, I mean, I'm the one accusing somebody of sin, but you're the one being legalistic and in, in trying to, like, clarify what the sin exactly is to determine whether or not he did it when he was clearly uh, not in the spirit of love God and love people. And yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just like, it's just obvious. It's obvious to any, you don't even have to be a Christian. You don't have to be, you don't know anything about anything. You listen to that conversation. If you're being honest uh, with yourself and with the audio that you're hearing, it's kind of mean, like you wouldn't yeah. want, you wouldn't want somebody to say that about you. Yeah. You just would. And, and so, and yeah, it's just this weird, like, um, yeah, it's like, obviously sin is something a little more nuanced than just a list of wrongs. And, Mm -hmm. and, and again, that was something that we were taught that it's not just a list that you can live by. Like that's legalism. What? But here we are. So. When I feel like even that's the wrong question for the person to be asking you, you know, and really it comes down to, did he like, just as a rule, like, is he, is he honoring this person? Right. Like is what's being said honoring. Um, and anyone like, again, if you're being honest, yeah. If you're being, like you said, if you're being honest, you'd hear that. No, this doesn't honor this person. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, we were kind of getting here, but I saw a tweet from Cindy Wang Brandt, who is at Cindy Wang Brandt on Twitter, where she wrote the most egregious thing about the original sin doctrine. Isn't the judgment and shame a child feels about their misbehavior. It's the slow erosion of their ability to trust themselves. So yeah, I wanted to hear from you. How did that doctrine of original sin erode your ability to trust yourself? Yeah, I mean, in, um, I would say that it, it really, it's, it's one of those things where you, in some ways it didn't, because I was also a hypocrite, you know, in the system I was, I was, and I mean, sure, I mean, I was a person, I was, everybody's kind of hypocritical um, at some point, but in some ways I was able to ignore that I was blatantly not following my own like professed beliefs but in other ways I think especially when it came to the internal turmoil that I eventually reached because I I was completely sold on the on the theology of like the tulip but I was also completely of an understanding that I was incapable beyond incapable to even believe the right thing you know because because in that system it was like well if you believe the right thing that will lead to that will lead to good fruit 
um, and it will lead to increasing fruit. And it just didn't. Mm-hmm. Like, to be honest, it just didn't. It never did uh, in terms of, you know, what I was attempting to accomplish in terms of, um, of, of changing my character or my actions or my whatever. And so, so yeah, so that, that really, I, th- I think that's where that played out because I, I was thinking, well, I'm just doomed because obviously I was born this way and this is inherently evil and I am not, and I'm not, uh, I'm not able to escape, you know? So I think that's the, I think that's the major piece of it in terms of what I thought I could accomplish. I, I guess, I mean, I was, I was in a system of, of male cisgender white supremacy and I was, I was white and male and you know, like, so like I, in a lot of ways, some of that was, even dampened because I, I could, you know, I could do whatever I wanted. You know, I could be, I could be as powerful as I wanted to in that system. And I, I mean, I didn't know it, but I, but I certainly didn't feel restrained by my supposed sin, which is like, uh, I mean, concerning all on its own. Right. <laughs> you know, like, it, but uh, though at the same time, in some ways, and this is kind of weird to say, but in some ways I didn't go as far as high into leadership as I could have because I was always concerned in the background. I was always saying to myself, you're not real. You're not, you're not real enough. You're not good enough. You have these problems in your, in your life. And here's all these people that hit all these problems and went all the way to the top to these head pastors, these mega Mm -hmm. pastor, you know, and they, and they, they hit it the whole time. And then they just, their life crumbled to pieces. And so mm-hmm. my thing was like, I'll, I'll, I'll hold on to these cause I can't let them go. Cause I don't, you know, I just, I'm, I'm, I can't. And then I will, but I just won't go. I won't go all the way up the ladder. Yeah. And in some ways I'm really glad I did that. And then through therapy and through it, like a lot of different things, I was able to let some of those things go in a more healthy way without ever letting my character rise to a place that, or letting my, my, my position rise to a place that my character mm-hmm. couldn't take me, um, mm-hmm. couldn't, couldn't come with me as well too. And, um, uh, but, but certainly all along the way, there was an erosion of self capability to, uh, you know, to be a good person, to be, to be okay. You know, like all, all of yeah. those things, I think for, and the, and, and maybe less in terms of what I thought I could do or accomplish and more in terms of what I, who I thought I was as a person. Mm-hmm. I thought I was yeah. a person doomed for eternal hell that I was, that I was not an elect member of God's family, you know, that I, and, and those kind of thoughts really can, can take you to some dark places. So, yeah. So I think that's how it affected me mainly. Yeah, no, I really like, I like you bringing that idea up of you could have ascended like further up at your character, like just to have that awareness that your character wouldn't have been there with you. Um, Yeah. I think the only thing I would add is for me as a woman, right. This whole other layer there of, like being taught Eve was deceived and therefore I was more easily 
deceived than the men around me simply because mm-hmm. I was a woman. But for anyone like listening who wants to dig, dig more into that, like when I listen to the almost heretical podcast, their, their series on gender, so I just felt so many emotions as they redeemed Eve for me by explaining what happened in the garden is better understood or more helpful. I guess I should say more helpful to understand it as a failure on Adam's part to effectively teach the command given to him by God, since that's who is recorded as receiving the command, um, rather than a failure on Eve's part to obey God's command. So yeah, it was really fascinating to hear all of that taught in a way that I never had before, but even getting into some with the total depravity. Um, I read something posted by Aaron Rose, who's at Aaron X Rose on Instagram. And I sent this to you. Human patterns are not human nature. And then there were these two columns, yeah. human patterns un- listed under that human patterns, violence, fear, uncertainty, division, inherently flawed, acting against our best interests, but then under human nature, um, was listed peace, trust, clarity, cooperation, inherently wise and making intuitively nourishing choices. And so, you know, I was taught those things listed under human patterns were human nature, you know, when immersed in the dehumanizing doctrine of total depravity. But yeah. And so you've, you've talked about this already, but, um, there's anything else you wanted to add about how total depravity shaped how you viewed yourself and others around you? Yeah. I mean, you know, it, 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 it does make you see the worst in people. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody really, I mean, you know, on one hand, we're supposed to like love the world at, when we were evangelical, but on the other hand, we were adamantly fighting mm-hmm. against them in this culture war of like, mm-hmm. yeah. Starbucks is what well, they got rid of Christmas on their cup, you know, like just the real absurd, weird, weird things. It's like, how dare you, world? How dare you attack our God? You know, it's like, uh, wait, wait, what? <laughs> and, um, and then, you know, and, and, um, yeah, so that just that piece of, of this weird disconnect there, um, it, it just made you see everybody as an enemy. Everybody who's yeah. not a, and, and even every, like every Christian who's not a reformed Baptist, it, they were an enemy. Yeah. Um, like, I mean, the Methodist church across the street, the PCUSA church across the street from me in my hometown growing up were heretics. You know, I, I saw all the kids in my class that went to that, those churches as like, they're not Christians. <laughs> they're like these cultural they're like these weird cultural they go to church you know (laughs) I was the one like going to church you know like uh I was I was the same you know and and I was doing all this othering that that Jesus is like really not into and yeah it it just made everybody an enemy everybody's an enemy Mm -hmm. across the board and and um yeah and I think we talked about in the last episode how like that's really not Genesis one, like Genesis one is mm-hmm. original goodness. Yeah. And because of some stuff in Romans and how they like, how they like to piece together and, and prove text, some Genesis three and some Romans um, texts, they're like, no, uh, everybody's born into sin after Genesis three. 
and mm-hmm. it's like mm, I don't know yeah. it's kind of a stretch <laughs> yeah well and you were even getting this getting to this too when talking about your son so uh I was standing in line to vote and it was just so sad hearing someone who I assume is a pastor on the phone when I was in line to vote and he was talking with someone about a spiritual gifts assessment that he had taken uh the person on the phone had taken and so the pastor is saying oh you scored an 11 in giving like that's an area where you can be working because And he said, giving really is a gift since we're born takers. So going back to that Aaron Rose post that I just mentioned, like I've seen that what I patiently practice and model to the kids around me, whether that's my own kids in my case or, you know, other kids, um, what I practice and model is what they emulate. So when I yeah. believed kids were born takers, when I believed my kids were born takers, cause that, that informed, I'm like, right. poor Joshua, he got like a completely different version of us than we are now. <laughs> but um, when I viewed my kids as born takers, I treated them as if they're born takers. So yeah, like how specifically right. would you say the doctrine of depravity, total depravity, um, shape how you viewed babies and children? Well, sure. I mean, I, I remember um, thinking and believing that the best way to teach a child, obviously way before I ever had one, was to ensure that they knew that their hearts were darkened from birth. Like I remember like, that's the line that I have to give them. Like, uh, and, and even just to like, um, as a parent, I, maybe this isn't everybody's experience, but my son is the most giving being I know. Like he, he does not take a bite without offering. Like he's, he's more giving than we are, you know, like mm-hmm. he, and, and actually when he's attempting to take now that he's a little bit older and like, say we me and Danielle both have coffee in the morning and he's trying to take it's actually because he has this sense of an injustice of like you guys aren't sharing with me and I share with you all the time you know it's it's I mean it's it's palatable where he's going like hold on like I like we're supposed to be giving to one like we're I like I take a bite I give you a bite you know and um and it's like where's mine isn't coming from a place of I was born selfish. It's coming from a place of I was born as a giver and I, and this, this feels, this feels wrong, you know, that I can't have. And, you know, there's, there's really good reasons why he can't have the coffee and why he can't have the alcoholic beverage and, you know, like, like why he can't have these things. And, um, but, you know, just seeing the raw, the raw, I mean, this person that I, I mean, I didn't teach like the first time he did it, I had, I had never, you know, I didn't like share with Danielle. And then, um, so yeah, so I, I think I, I definitely refute that idea now, but, but I definitely saw kids before as like kind of little devils that you have to beat the gospel into. And now I'm just like, how does any how does anybody believe that like how, how do you not see that like all the evil they do is just stuff that you taught them you know yeah. and and they're they start out so good they just start out so wonderful so 
Oh, I love that insight so much. Thanks for sharing that. Um, But yeah, you even mentioned like proof texting. And I was thinking about the verses that are used to proof text this theology of depravity and just how dehumanizing it is. And it really impedes our ability to practice compassion towards ourselves. It's like, if I can't practice compassion towards myself and love myself correctly, like I'm not going to love others from this place that is healed. Um, But yeah, like I I think specifically about right. Psalm 51, five, where David wrote, you know, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me, you know, it's a big one. And then you mentioned Romans, you know, Romans 310, where Paul wrote, there is no one righteous, not even one. And so something that was so transformative for me was examining the way Jesus interacted with children. And how he didn't teach this theology of total depravity to children. He didn't characterize children as wicked from conception. Instead, what did he do? Like he told his followers to become like children, Children. right? And so, yeah, like how have you seen these words of David, Paul, or, you know, any other contributors to what we call the Bible elevated above the teachings of Jesus? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's just a common issue in general, that comes from a whole different set of problems that have arisen in evangelicalism, in which the teachings of Jesus are equated, are are given equal weight to the rest of the Bible. So, I mean, this is a little bit of a rabbit trail to what we're actually talking about with total depravity, but, um, but because of the view of what the Bible is in, in a conservative evangelical context, they will give the same weight to the texts about genocide as they give to the Sermon on the Mount. You know, they, it's just, it's all the same power. It's all the same weight. It's all the same God talking. Um, and, and that all stems from a view of, of how the Bible is inspired and how it was written. And, and uh, I just don't think that's right. And like, I think that you have Jesus himself, uh, said he came to fulfill the law and the prophets and uh you know and said that if you haven't seen the father unless you've seen me and so like there's these seminal texts in the bible that jesus says um or that are that are the that are the the red letter stuff that give us direction on how to how to weigh (laughs) the bible and even evangelicalism is 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 bent on ensuring that we're following Jesus. And so, mm-hmm. so in, yeah, anyway, in, in my view, the, the teachings of Jesus should always outweigh the rest of the Bible. And if it's, if it's a, if it's a, if it's a, a Jesus text versus another Bible text, the Jesus text wins in terms of the interpretive power over, you know, the, the other text. Um, and yeah, I mean, the Psalm 51 example is also, admittedly in evangelicalism not a good text to derive foundational theology from because the psalms are not about primarily uh you know who god is they're they're primarily about a man's honest prayers and interactions with god and i've heard a bunch of evangelical sermons about that like about how these are these are a man's honest this is how you should pray. This is what the Psalms are about. This is how you should pray. And of course, if you just killed a man's wife, uh, killed a, 
killed a woman's husband and took her and and then committed adultery or committed adultery with her, killed her husband and then took her as your wife. And then you're reckoning with how awful you are. Of course, you're going to write that you're sinful from your mother. Like, I mean, of course, that's how, what you're going to pray um, if you're if you're at all reflecting honestly. So, you know, and then. Um, yeah. And then I think Paul is is in the, in the Romans is largely addressing corporate sin uh, as well. That just like he, he's he's saying, like, man, you look at the world like it's awful. <laughs> uh, and 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 that is, again, just that 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 sin, that sin and depravity, it it manifests itself corporately um, in this in this sense of no one is not an individualistic term even if it sounds like it is and man i don't even know the greek behind that but i'd be willing to bet that um you know and you know no one no, not one i'd probably have to do a little more work on that one to 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 take a look but but like i i just and i just think that in general um there there is a lot of depravity in our world and there's and i and i will concede that it is not without good reason that a theology like that has arisen, you know, there, um, there does appear to be, um, over the course of history that evil get like is, is, has more momentum, hmm. you know, it, 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 at least appears that way uh, as a hopeful person, I would like to believe that that's not actually true. It, hmm. that evil's just a little more visible weirdly than good, but, um, but, but at the end of the day, yeah, I, I think that um, that in terms of, I guess, to get back to your question, you know, a, a text where Jesus is telling us to become like children should be one of the more chief texts that we're trying to understand, not just like uh, a sermon that gets passed by once every, you know, like those core teachings are really, he's really trying to get us to think and to, and to understand what it's like to, yeah, to follow him. And he's not using any illustration flippantly. Um, so yeah, so I don't know that, that got a little tangential. But. <laughs> yeah. Well, sorry. I hope this doesn't make it awkward, but to go back to the David thing, um, like really, as we understand it now, it's like he raped Bathsheba you know, yes. like we, you know, yeah, we committed adultery. It's so like, yeah. it's so I've heard so many sermons. I'm like, yeah. So I know, you know that you like, would not think that it was this equal thing, but yeah, just to like throw that out. Yeah. So it's like he, all these things kidnapped were, and raped. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. So then accurate. from that place, writing Psalm 51 for sure. And it's like to people who worship the Bible, um, I know that what I'm about to say sounds like super heretical, but I'm like, I don't care what David or Paul wrote, like when it comes down to, like you said, examining the teaching of Jesus. Cause I was like thinking about how Jesus didn't even teach this theology of being a sinner from conception that, you know, David, you know, that, that we would point to and say that David's writing about. And he certainly didn't teach Pauline theology since Paul became a Christian after Jesus's time on earth. So yeah, I just keep thinking like how Jesus never apologized to the religious for loving marginalized people in word and deed and for loving children 
in word and deed. And yeah. I know evangelicals who will elevate these verses from the Pauline epistles to withhold equality from, to deny dignity of, to erase the humanity of, and at the end of it, justify a lack of love towards marginalized people. And I was once one of those evangelicals. Yeah. And so now yeah. when I hear someone say like, Paul plainly wrote, and you know, want to go off on something to somehow override the clear teaching, like what we see yeah. as the clear teaching of Jesus to love neighbor as you love yourself. I'm like, wow, for people who claim the centrality of Christ and who can wear this gospel centered label as a badge of honor, we go through a lot of mental gymnastics to dodge fulfilling that second greatest yeah. commandment in order to adhere to what we think Paul is teaching, right. you know? Um, and so, yeah, I'm like, I'm still unlearning that. And, you know, I just believe that if we have to use Paul or David or any other uh, Bible writer uh, to cancel Jesus, then we aren't doing it right. You know? And yeah. again, like we are missing so much, even in what we think Paul is saying for things we grab. Um, but yeah, I mean, just to kind of, to move us along here, I was thinking about, uh, I did want to say that the late Rachel Hall Evans talked about the weaponization of the Bible and how we can find daggers in the Bible, or we can bring balm for healing. And, you know, just thinking about an especially traumatic and violent use of the Bible is from Christians who will go there to pull out what's been referred to as clobber passages to justify hatred and judgment against members of the LGBTQ plus community. And um, I'm actually going to be talking to Austin Hartke on the podcast about his book, Transforming uh, the Bible and the Lives of Transgender Christians, uh, a book that I highly recommend for anyone examining how we can love our transgender siblings. But yeah, it's like through all of this, right? Like what we're talking about now is that we can look at these teachings of Jesus when he talks about how he came to bring abundant life and we can apply that to our interactions with people. And if someone doesn't feel loved by my actions or words, like how you were talking about with people who say Christian, evangelical Christian equals hates people in the LGBTQ community. It's right. like, you know, they get to determine if what I've done and said is loving or not. And, um, you know, if it doesn't help them live an abundant life and they tell me that I don't get to be defensive about it. Um, right. and I shouldn't be, I simply change my course as informed by the recipient of my actions and words. And so I would say now that I trust people to interpret their own experiences. Whereas before I would have judged them, like we were talking about with total depravity. It's like, right. when you say you can't trust yourself, then you think other people can't trust themselves to interpret their own experiences either yeah. and to know what's good. Totally. Um, so yeah, I would have judged them as just not knowing what's good for them, which yeah, the original sin doctrine and would have assumed that I knew better because of the interpretation of the Bible that we taught, which was biased because <laughs> it was rooted in whiteness. It was rooted in conservative politics, patriarchy, heteronormativity, transphobia, colonialism, and capitalism. And, you know, we would say it wasn't biased, like you were saying, but it's like, it was biased, even if those teaching the theology said that they had the purest theology and that everyone else had the biased theology, even but they didn't know it was biased. Like, yeah. Yeah. And so with kind of all that as a backdrop, I, I just want to ask you, what are your interactions like with the Bible now? What does that look like for you? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I, I have, I am 
on a now five or six year journey of of um, listening to what other people have to say about the Bible. And uh, the old evangelical in me is going, yeah, you're, you're way off the path, man. You got to be in it yourself. You got to be in those pages every day or you're missing it. And, um, and, uh, and, and I even feel like the, I even feel like the, I don't know, in my subconscious, I'm like, oh, for the, you know, for the person in my old community that's listening to this now, and they're saying, oh, he hasn't read the Bible. And, you know, I probably haven't like read the Bible consistently in that amount of time either, like got into it from my, and dug around and, you know, um, and, uh, and, you know, like I, I'm, I'm even just thinking like, oh, well, <laughs> everything I've said is going out the window for them. Cause they're like, oh, he didn't even read it for himself anymore. And, uh, but honestly, I, I, I am at a point where, and again, that I, that I reached a point from, um, from a lot of good teachers and, uh, and a lot of good reading it myself that I realized I, I don't have the tools here. <laughs> like, I don't have the tools to understand this Bible. I, I just don't have it. I don't even have a good version. You know, I don't have a, I, I don't even know if there is a good version that is going to, that's going to, to, to accurately, um, accurately tell me what was really written. And so what I am going to do is go on a journey for, to, for all the people who, uh, I see fruit in, in, in terms of their compassion and their kindness and their Christ likeness from my 28 years of understanding of what Christ likeness is, which actually they did a decent job of talking about Jesus a lot, even if weirdly all the tertiary stuff just was completely unrelated to his character. They taught, you know, I, I, I learned all of, all of the gospels. And so in terms of what Jesus was like, and so, so, so now I'm on a journey of, um, not a direct relationship with the Bible, but a relationship with all those who love the Bible more than me and appear to be loving people better than me and listening to what they have to say about the Bible. Um, that's, that's kind of what my interactions with the Bible currently look like. Um, because, because of, yeah, because I, I'm at a point where I'm saying, if and when I read this, I am so beyond my ability to capture um, uh, meaning that's 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 correct, even remotely. Um, that I that I would like to instead listen to the people who have devoted their lives to to understanding it and who and who show. Have demonstrated that they that they have uh, ascertained some of its you know been able to been able to apply some of its 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 knowledge in their own lives um, yeah so that's yeah. that's kind of what my current relationship with the Bible looks like um, there is a good there actually there is a version by David Bentley Hart 
where he uh, um, that he recently it's just a New Testament translation that he came out with a couple years back in which he attempts to preserve the absurdness of the writing of the New Testament because it's it's kind of broken Greek mm-hmm. um, and instead of making all these translation uh, uh, decisions to make it read smoothly he just kind of leaves in the abruptness and the run-on sentences and the confusing language and kind of does a direct translation um as much as you can and and it's and i've I've read a little bit of that in terms of my direct interaction and i'm realizing like this thing is totally different than the thing i've been reading the whole time um and yeah so so that maybe that's the one piece where i've recently directly been in the text to just be like whoa this is highly confusing (laughs) I would say that, like you were saying, that people might think like, oh, well, you don't even read it. So, you know, can't trust you anymore. But honestly, I would say that I'm always meditating now on the Bible, even when I'm not reading it. And I couldn't say that before. Right. But it's now I seem to have this richer relationship with the Bible. Um, And I was speaking about. You know, yeah, because like I understand things that I was missing before and now I can I can go deeper and be actually meditating what something that I always wanted to do, but just never did. Like, honestly, my Bible reading before was I woke up, I read it and I didn't think about what I'd read the rest of the day. And so it's um, even if I'm not reading it as often now, I'm thinking about it a lot more. Um, and yeah, I think it was Jen Hatmaker in a podcast episode where she talked about how Christians tend to approach the Bible, like in our modern era and all those things in Western culture as a conversation stopper, you know, like the Bible clearly says this. And so there's no further discussion versus Jewish people approaching their sacred text as a conversation starter. Um, and so that was like you were saying, I get to where now I'm really curious to know the interpretations of other people and learn from them. And I think another piece of it for me was, you know, I was taught the Bible is inerrant. And then when I heard someone talk about that's something the Bible contributors themselves never tried to like lay on the Bible to say it was inerrant. And yeah, the book inspired by Rachel Hove Evans was such a game changer for me as I came to terms with, yeah, I was like, I can be grateful for the Bible that I have rather than trying to make the Bible be something the writers never meant for it to be. Um, So that's just kind of another side of it. Um, Yeah. And a big question, a couple to wrap us up uh, in the, in this section, but what do you believe about salvation now? Yeah. You know, some of these big questions like, um, like sin Sin's a little more tangible. Um, salvation and and like heaven and hell. These uh, these things that were previously about the other side of life mm-hmm. are now in in question. So, and I think I'm just at a place now where I'm I'm more honest. I'm I'm more honestly approaching the fact that like 
we don't know anything about the other side of uh life um we we know we know about the the other other side of life from because we came from there that it wasn't there wasn't we have no memory of it (laughs) so like you know like uh pre being born i i have no recollections about that um and so uh, i don't know the my 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 views on salvation there's this great john mark mcmillan song who he's still very christian um he says uh all the things i've begged you for eternity and evermore are standing with me here beneath the rain so you know i don't I, I think I'm kind of at the point where I don't know. I would like to live forever. <laughs> uh, I mean, I mean, I'm an individual. Of course, I would like to live forever. Uh, I I do think my my view is is steering more towards that these these concepts of heaven and hell and salvation or destruction are are more presently with us than we would like to believe and that that they exist more inside of our time than they exist outside and I I think some of Jesus's teachings are consistent with that 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 you know to bring the kingdom of God to us Mm -hmm. um and even just the acceptance that he that he gives to the thief on the cross uh, like quite literally today they were they were together like they were together yeah. uh in that moment and the acceptance being uh, of christ being that paradise mm. uh of a, of someone who was unloved and 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 at, at their dying breath you know so like there's i and in and as a as a as a parent and and even just on my journey out of evangelicalism feeling like i'm, I'm waking up there's there's so many wondrous moments that feel so incredibly uh, you know getting back to that piece of of talking about like when I can remember like that I'm here mm-hmm. and like what that I'm here at all is this just um wild extreme uh feeling of of what is what get what a gift and so that I think to um it's very hard to explain, but I think that's that's kind of where my view of salvation is is leaning to. And I heard somebody say, um, actually, that really has messed with me about our our evangelical view of salvation that um, that we would that we'll die and live forever. That it's it's a really like um, it's actually really counter Christian. It's like very selfish and very <laughs> self serving for 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 us to believe that like. I'm going to get to die and live forever. And or, like, I, I will, I will exist for like, it's, it's almost this, I'm going to become like God. It's this, this primal, um, I wouldn't say satanic, but you know, like the same type of, the same type of feeling that Lucifer had where in that story of just like, I'm going to become like God and live forever mm. and exist. And I will, I will, I will um, persist in this universe it's very not humble it's, it's very kind of opposite of jesus too where he was like i'm 
I, I have, I'm coming to give my life. <laughs> um, so to, I don't know, that really messes with me too, to think about like, I, I hope that I will spend eternity with a being uh, who is as kind and benevolent as Jesus and that we all will and that the world will be reconciled and redeemed in, in, in real time, you know, um, and then all the loss will, will slip away and, you know, all of that stuff. And like, I, I hope for that. And I think that as a Christian, you're supposed to be hopeful towards those types of things. And I think that the, there's some really good work by Rob Bell. There's this talk he does called everything spiritual and we could link it in the notes too, if we want to, but, um, where he talks about the universe is ever increasing in complexity and love and unity. And I think that he makes a really good argument for, for that. And, and so I'm hopeful that that is what salvation is and means. Um, but I am much less convinced that it is something that I will individually attain to and be preserved within as much as I would like to be. So that was kind of a long answer for that one, but, um, yeah, but that's kind of my thoughts on salvation. Yeah. Well, I know again, people would have, uh, and I would have thought this too, for someone to say they're a universalist would have been, uh, well, then you're automatically counted out. But it's like, I really now think that God's promise to reconcile all things back to God is all things like that. All things means all things. And, um, I know for me, the heaven and hell series, cause you mentioned uh, about hell and then sure. even talking about this heaven, um, yeah, that on almost heretical was so helpful as I studied all these scriptures and realized that all these Bible contributors didn't even have a consensus on a singular notion of hell. Like we've been taught was yeah. just so helpful. And then when it comes to eternal conscious torment, I think it was father Richard Rohr who said, it's not God who is violent. It is we who are violent. Yeah. And as I started to see that God is love and God is not violent. Then I saw that this view of eternal conscious torment was just inconsistent with who God is. And yeah, I've heard so many people talk about dreaming up and living into a better world that brings heaven to earth. Even if the people around you despise you for doing so, or stand in opposition to you, like the religious did with Jesus. And right. one example was, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so like, one example was the existential podcast, this episode, American mythology. And it was a conversation about Marxism and faith with Alicia Crosby and Allie Henney. And so for me now, I'm like, I just don't let the lack of imagination of other people keep me from cultivating a better world where I can, yeah. you know, so good. All right. So do you still identify as Christian and why? this is a hard question to answer, but I want, I want to answer it. Um, Cause the way you phrase it, do you identify as a Christian? I have to think about like, what is a Christian? Is it, is it what the majority of people in America think when they think the word Christian? Is it the definition that they originally got labeled, which was like making fun of them and calling them little Christs? Um, so I like, I think about all of that and, and is it with the, you know, however many billion plus people identify as, is it some amalgamation of all of that today? Mm -hmm. Uh, and I, I think I just to, for like simplicity's sake, will 
use the original definition, <laughs> the, the definition that was given in jest of like, oh, you're just a bunch of little Jesuses, a little Christ. Um, and in, in that way, I, if I examine myself, I am not, but I'm trying to be, I would like to be, Yeah. I'm, I am, I find the teachings of Jesus very compelling. I find him to be, um, I find his ways to be genuinely good for um, my life and for the lives of others. If I, mm -hmm. if I follow his, his teachings, uh, but most of the time I don't. And like, and that's, that's, and that's from coming from a genuine place of like, we were talking about the whole, how is total depravity influenced your, you know, like, like this is coming from a more grounded and centered place of, I know who I am. And I know I don't live into this way most of the time. Uh, there's a quote from Peter Rollins that I that I uh, share on social media every year now, where he says, "Do he says, do I deny the resurrection?" Um, people ask me, "Do I deny the resurrection?" I and I have to admit that I completely and totally deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I deny the resurrection every time I don't um serve at the feet of the poor every time i don't protect the widows and the orphans every time that i you know and, and he kind of goes through this list and he's like but i there are rare moments when i affirm the resurrection you know when i cry with those who who, who cry and when I, you know and, and it kind of goes through a very poetic beautiful version of the beatitudes of like when i do these things i affirm the resurrection and that's kind of how i think about my Christianity now of, of, I am, I am compelled by the, the teachings of Jesus as I understand them to really be, mm -hmm. um, in terms of how they, how they, how they give dignity to people, how they help me become a more loving and humble and kind person. If I, if I try to follow them. And so, I don't necessarily identify as a Christian, but I would like to be one. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, um, and I do. Um, and, 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 and in the sense of this, the, the whole, a lot of the Paul teachings of like, you are one with Christ and like Christ is the, is this generating force of the world. Like um, the, I, I mean, I am a Christian because <laughs> I am one with Christ in whatever sense of the existence that, you know, that is, um, I'd like to believe that I am, I am a part of the unity of, of, of goodness of, of, you know, and, and yeah, so, so maybe yes, <laughs> hopefully, yeah, hopefully that's the one, hopefully I'm a Christian but not scared about it if I'm, if I'm not, I'm just on my way there. Mm. Now I, I like that going back to the little Christ and wanting to embody what Christ showed us. And yeah, I often think of, I think it was Nadia Boltzweber who talked about this idea that Christianity is too powerful to be left in the hands of the people who will misuse it. 
you know? So like the idea of answering why Christian, you know, for her to still be a Christian. And so it's like, yeah, I stay and I press on in the following of these teachings that have been passed down as the teaching of Jesus, because these are just too powerful and transformative to leave in the wrong hands. And that if we live these, they will usher in that true peace and justice on earth as it is in heaven. Yeah. And so I know that for you, you've had one person directly call you apostate (laughs) and level that against you. And um, I assume others who, even if they didn't say it, would would believe that way. So, yeah, like how has that affected you to have people think you are apostate because of these evolving, shifting, changing beliefs? Yeah, I mean, you know, we've talked about it before. Initially, it con- it, it contributes a lot to that um, um, that feeling of 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 being excommunicated or, or, or whatever it is, or even just, you know, as a framework growing up, I, I, I staked a lot of my value, personal value in my ability to, um, to say the right things, to, to articulate the -hmm. truth in a way that I was going to receive praise and adoration, you know, for believing it fervently and rightly Mm -hmm. and accurately enough. And, and so, I mean, initially upon the exit of, of really deciding that, that there was something more worth it than holding on to all those things, um, I, it, it's, it was very painful. I mean, just to be, mm. you know, direct um, and, and very hurtful. But, um, but you know, it, it's also as Richard Rohr says that, you know, the, the universal paths to transformation are love and suffering. And I don't think I would on, on the other side of it. um, I don't think I would have as, as uh, robust of a perspective about what it feels like to be an outsider. If I didn't have the, the, the very acute experience of someone telling me that I was a heretic and that I was going to hell. Um, and then, and, but then also the, the quiet um, judgment from afar from the rest. Uh, I, I don't think I would, I would have as, uh, yeah, uh, uh, as much of a understanding of what, um, what I now understand to really be a, a Christian perspective which is to be mm-hmm. someone who is on the uh, is out at the edges you know to uh, um to be someone who is uh outside of the fold or at the edge of the fold um and and to be where jesus likes to reside which is there um so you know if i really think deeply about it i'm like i i wish that those that those experiences could go away <laughs> but um because i i really want because and then like i've said before is like i i want you i want them to see me as one of them because i feel i still feel like i am one of them i just feel like i've i'm taking it seriously i want to be affirmed as someone taking it seriously and for to be called a, uh, a heretic or apostate is to be not is to be fundamentally not taken seriously Mm. Um, 
is to be fundament, fundamentally misunderstanding uh, and and condemned. So I, yeah, so I, I wish I could, I wish that could be expunged <laughs> from reality, but um, but at the same time, I have to kind of accept and acknowledge the the gifts that have um, been provided through those experiences you know because that's just reality it's just that all all suffering produces a unlikely gift and uh and it's not that you would choose the suffering to get the gift but it is at least miraculous that there is seemingly always a gift among the you know among that awful those awful things that happen so anyway yeah um that's kind of what it's what it it, it was like i mean just plainly not good but learning Mm -hmm. from it you know yeah i mean i had someone who i would have considered a friend who once was a friend tell me like i am being deceived as they tore me apart in these email exchanges and you know i had someone else who at the time was very close to me and say that she, you know she said that she missed the old nikki and accused me of doing the work of the devil and so it's like obviously those comments hurt right yeah um like that's one level of it but then to get at some of what you've also talked about it's like the isolation that comes from people withdrawing from me that's been so difficult right it's like people who haven't directly said those things like what these other two people said but who no doubt must be in line with what those people think because they've distanced themselves from me it's like that sucks like it just Mm -hmm. hurts a lot um so yeah with all of that like with this whole conversation in mind and where we were um, the people we were and honoring the journey that we've been on and the people we knew um, what is your hope for those Christians that you were once in community with? Yeah, I mean, I, I think my main thing is <clears throat> I hope that they come to, I hope that they're on a, um, a journey of their own towards a deeper understanding of their, of their ascribed belief, mm-hmm. you know, like, I, I truly still believe that if you can hold Jesus at the center as best you can the whole time that you're trying to practice as a Christian, that, um, that you, that you will get closer and closer, you know, to, you will see where you are missing it, where you're, I mean, I, I, I have a friend who is, um, he's a good deal younger than me, but was in my youth group. And he is very much, um, very much a conservative evangelical, but he is railing against Christian nationalism, like up and down the, the, the social media. And, 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 um, and it's just, it's beautiful because like on one hand, he'll post something um, uh, theological in nature that I just, 175 percent disagree with and then Mm. he'll be posting about have you heard about the cult of christian nationalism and how it's destroying our churches and i'm just like okay i mean this person is pursuing 
Jesus as best they can. They're reading their Bible. They're saying like, Jesus is not a, a nationalist. He's not a, he's not like, pr- he's not trying to change the nation through politics. Like he's just, he's loving, pe- you know? So like, I, I, that's my hope is that, is that the people and and um, yeah, is that the people in my, in my previous, in our previous community um, that they, that they could, that they fix their eyes and that they also, but that they also, have a openness to the bigness of the God that they ascribe Mm -hmm. is so infinitely big, you know, um, it's okay to be closed on some things, you know, you have to be to, to, to just navigate, but like, um, but Christianity requires some level of openness, um, and some level of, of, I, I, I do not have this yet. And there are, and, and, and a lot of times the people that I think are other are, are Christ in, in hiding, <laughs> um, and have something to teach me about him. And, um, mm, yeah. yeah. And so that's, I think that's my hope is that as the world becomes more polarized, that the Christians, the, the real Christians, you know, what, whatever we're going to call them, like the people that I know to be genuinely loving that they would, um, and, and genuinely trying to follow that they would, um, that they would, that they would grow, you know, deeper yeah. in their, in their understanding. Um, that's my mm-hmm. hope. And that they would talk to me, you know, if you're listening and you're like, I can't believe that Jordan believes all of this like wacky stuff. I am, I just like, I would love, absolutely love to talk. Just like, I would love to con- to connect and to talk again. I'm the same person that I was. I think that's, that's what my, my bigger hope is that I could connect with them again. Because mm. uh, I don't, I don't hate any of, like, I, I just miss, I miss all of them. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Like I echo that, just the missing. And it's like, I want their healing and their wholeness as much as I want healing and wholeness for myself. It's not like an either, or, you know, it's, I want like what I want for myself. Like I want for them too. Um, so yeah. Well, what is your hope for the Christians that you're in community with now? Yeah. So this one is, um, I think, uh, a little bit more difficult. I think, I, I think, my hope for like us uh, is is to is that we would understand how to move forward, that we wouldn't get caught up in our own certainty. Um, that is just as counterproductive. Um, that we would, yeah, be patient and and kind, and all the things that we are, you know. <laughs> Um, upset that that our previous community didn't do that that we would be able to like um, and then and then I think the thing that I'm most thinking about now is how do you, how does how do we how do we commune <laughs> you know how do we like how how do the Christians I'm in community with now how do we gather in in a um, meaningful Mm-hmm. sense how do we not allow those um well-worn 
paths of power and systemic evil to mm-hmm. seep into our decision to consolidate together and mm-hmm. and form you know uh, uh, yeah it's just the the tim the technology of community is is the path to life and the path to death no matter what your underpinning beliefs are mm-hmm. like it's it can take you to it so i think that's my hope is just as we as we try to figure out how to organize in this new wave of christianity expression of you know that we would not repeat the sins of the past um which i'm sure there will be some level of but um that we will that we will truly further the kingdom and further the mission of and the vision of jesus in terms of bringing heaven to earth yeah Uh, yeah i think that's it yeah i definitely think right like if we could grow in humility and if we like you know as we are evolving as we are on this journey that it would lead us to seeking justice that achieves like you're talking about, like the way Jesus lived and that we could see these physical miracles that Jesus performed, that we could see that, Hey, we can replicate that too. Um, to bring up pastor David again from Hawaii. Like he talked about how the miracle of Jesus healings were that he didn't charge for them. Right. Because there were other healers. And he said something about like that can make people uncomfortable to think like there were other yeah. people who could have healed this person, you know, and like we know the woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years spent all she had going to people who charged for healings, but Jesus didn't charge. And that was a miracle in itself. And that should translate to free healthcare for all, you know? So it's like, man, I hope we can embody these types of miracles as the hands and feet of Jesus and just really continue the ministry he started. So yeah, with all that in mind, just thank you, Jordan, for talking with me tonight. And I just value you and your friendship and appreciate your vulnerability in this conversation and just giving all this time to talk. Yeah. I mean, Thank you again for having me again. I think last time I said that it's my, that my, uh, my next steps are to be more of a listener (laughs) and hopefully, even though we just like talked forever that, uh, if anything, this conversation is just an expression of everything I've been listening to. (laughs) Um, but, um, but, but yeah, I mean, just thank you for doing this and for, um, um, for giving people an opportunity to speak uh, mm-hmm. about all of these things, you know, I, I think it's just a, it's just so needed. So many of us spent so long without an ability to to communicate in this way, and and it's it's healing just to be able to to talk about it, whether anybody ever listens to it or not, you know. Um, so thank you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for trusting me and sharing and being, yeah, just the sacred space to get to hold for people who are hurting. And it's just such a joy um, in the sadness and in the loss or, you know, in all those things to be able to, to hold this space for people. Mm 
As always, I absolutely love talking with Jordan, and I hope you all were as encouraged by this conversation with him as I was. The music from today's episode was Humming Fools by Micah Bournet, and the full song will close out the episode. You can stream, purchase, and download Micah's music at micahbournet.bandcamp.com. If you like what you heard today, share it with a friend. I really think that little by little, person by person, we can broaden the narrative. I also want to thank Jordan for his help with editing and Daniel Bolin for creating the episode graphic. You can access the Broadening the Narrative blog and transcripts for episodes as they become available by visiting broadeningthenarrative.blogspot.com. Come back next week for a conversation I have with Austin Hartke about his book, Transforming, the Bible and the Lives of Transgender Christians. Grace and peace, friends. We are proud to be storytellers. But there was a time when we were considered fools. When only birds could fly and the earth was flat. When hip-hop and jazz were not considered music. When black and brown were not considered human. When humans could not walk on the moon. When pictures could not move, when women could not vote. When we could not share a meal unless we shared a skin tone. Yes, we were there. Way back then. Being mocked and dismissed by most. But we never were ashamed. We never stayed quiet. We were there, telling stories of a day when impossible things would be daily routines. Today's common sense was yesterday's absurdity, yet here we are. Here we are today. Here we are, flying on airplanes, walking on moons, watching moving pictures in multiple dimensions, voting for women. Listening to MCs flow rivers of words over jazz beats Having meals and children with lovers from other cultures Yes, here we are, still considered fools Being mocked and dismissed by most But we never are ashamed, we never stay quiet Here we are, telling stories of a day when impossible things will be daily routines Today's absurdity will be tomorrow's common sense And we'll be there with more stories to be told More voices to be heard More nevers becoming every days We'll be there when creative things are not considered electives But core to the education of human beings When developing your creativity is a responsible thing And working a passionless job to get rich is a silly dream We'll be there when art is taken down from its ivory tower Consumed less like caviar and more like bread and water We'll be there when artists are not starving When humans are not starving When being white is not a privilege and being black is not a curse When we love Mother Earth like a mother instead of only taking from her We'll be there when our fantasies become common sense and even then we will speak of impossible things. The only hope we have are the stories we tell. Stories not bound by what is possible, by what is dead. We walk on water, we resurrect. They laughed us to death, but here we are. Humming fools, unashamed of hope. Our stories, our future. Our stories are foolish, only until tomorrow. Until tomorrow.
Here we are. 